Hello and welcome back. My name is Dr. Christopher Gennari. This is Great Big History Podcast. This is Cold War Part 2, Economics. A major part of the Cold War was not only the political war, but also the economic war between free trade capitalism and state-directed communism. Because we never really get true communism. Like, Karl Marx would look at all this and go, uh, this isn't the way it's supposed to be. But um, we call it communism, but it's really a state-directed economy where the, where the government makes the decisions on what's to be created. So free trade is the free movement of goods plus money, but not people around the world. And the United States creates the rules for this. And those rules are embodied in the WTO, the World Trade Organization. And they're a success. Free trade works. It would be better if people could move from place to place because that's a problem because you might have skills in one place, but you have demand in the other and you, you can't, the, you need the people to move, but countries... As you know, in 2016, from the uh, last election, um, immigration is a major issue in countries. Demographics are a major issue in social policy. And so goods and money move. I can buy Swiss chocolate. I can put my money into a French bank. But it's, I can't just move to France. I need to get a job, I need to get an invite, I need to get a visa, I gotta get, I have to do a whole lot of things. And the likelihood of me becoming French is very small. So we have the free movement of goods and money, but not people. So it's not a totally efficient system. It's not a platonic ideal of freedom, which would see the free movement of everything, but it works. The ad from, 1890 to 2000, the real gross domestic product per worker, that means what they're making, their productivity, goes up by almost seven times from 1890 to 2000. That doesn't mean their income goes up seven times. That means their productivity, the, the amount of money that they make they create goes up sevenfold. That's great. That's huge. That's a success. World G GDP, gross domestic product, the, the value of all the goods made in the world quintuples, increases by five times. That money allows for the purchase of education, of literacy, billion people leave poverty. In the last 20 years, another billion people left poverty in, when China industrialized. So it's a success. We get cheap machines and those cheap machines allow for a better life. 
we get more transportation, cheaper ships, more bridges, more rail, air, cheap air travel. So we have connections. We have the highway system. Highways didn't exist. You wanted to get from Philadelphia to Atlantic City, you had to take the White Horse Pike and go through all those little dinky towns along the way and stop at every light. And you want to believe that every town also had cops waiting for you guys to show up, blow through one stop sign or go a 40 in a 20, in a one block 20 and give you a ticket. This is how getting down to Florida to go to Disney World worked too. You want to go to vacation in Florida, in Fort Lauderdale? You were going to, if you were a northerner, you were without a doubt going down Route 1 and you were going to get a ticket in the Carolinas. It was just a, going to happen. That's how they made their money. Now they built the highways. In the 50s and the 60s, they're going to build the interstate highway system. So now you go, and you don't even care what state you're in. You know how fast you have to go on I-95 to be pulled over for speeding? And so not only can you travel, but trucks can travel. Goods can travel. Easier, cheaper. So now you have the connections to a wider world. The problem that comes with that is deindustrialization. It's now cheaper to make things somewhere else. Automation. I have enough money that I can now spend the money instead of on people. I can spend the upfront costs on a machine that costs a little more upfront, but in the long run will be cheaper. So automation and free trade, because now there's not blockages. I can set up my factory anywhere, plus transportation, cheap transportation and highways and container shipping equals manufacturing, cheap manufacturing, T-shirts, moves to poor countries. And you get the movement of industries. Now, this is not new. Textiles, clothing is a perfect example of this. In 1890, in 1850, t-shirts were made in Britain. By 1910, those t-shirts, those same t-shirts were made in Massachusetts. And in 2000, and 10, they're made in Bangladesh. This is not, this has always been part of the process. And deindustrialization has been part of the process. The Midlands of England in 1950 are not the best places to live. Those are towns that have lost their industries. London is, is by 19, the mid-1960s, London is swinging. It's got the financial sector. It's got insurance. It's part of world trade. It's got banking. But if you're in Stoke in 1972, even Manchester and Liverpool, big cities, had problems because they're all of their industry had moved to the United States where it was cheaper. And then in the 1970s, their, that industry, 70s and 80s, is going to leave the United States and go to Asia, Mexico, Latin America. And so what you get is, is poverty as industries leave. So manufacturing declines in Western cities, Liverpool, Detroit, the South Bronx, they all look the same. You get urban poverty. 
Now, remember, we're back to urban poverty. When we did industrialization in the 1890s and we did uh, Reese, Reese's book, How the Other Half Lives, that was urban poverty. And then we talked about in the Depression, urban, uh, rural poverty. Now we're back to urban poverty again because there's not enough jobs, there's not enough wages. So you have inequality between those who have high knowledge versus low knowledge. This is the world you live in now. This is why you're getting a, a college degree. This is why the community college exists to have a cheap alternative because education has always been expensive. But if you don't get that college degree, you cannot get into the higher paying industries that require that kind of knowledge, that kind of thinking. By the 2000s, rural America and working class Europe as well are suffering from, from these problems. And the reaction is from 2010 on is more right-wing conservative politics. Trump, Brexit, fascist groups in Hungary and Poland. It is a rejection of the free trade, center-left, New Deal, liberal, um, kind of socialist economic system and looking for one that will protect people. That is, to be frank, a little more fascist. Because the government says, whether it's Trump that says it, or Le Pen in France who says it, or the literal Nazis and fascists in Hungary and Poland who say it, they say, we will protect you. We will work for you. We will create tariffs. We will support industries. We will do things that save your job. That's not free trade. That's not capitalism, by the way. But people are looking for protection. They're watching their lifestyles disappear. In the, in, and they're not winning is the problem. Because if you're the banker, if you sell the stock of the company that goes to Bangladesh, you win. You make a percentage of that. Increase productivity. But if you're the worker left behind, remember, people can't move between places, though money and industry can. If you're the worker who's left behind, you look at your town that's now poor and has a brain drain because anybody who had the college degrees who could get better jobs have left. They've gone to New York. They've gone to Chicago. They've gone to L.A. or San Francisco. They've left. It's not a surprise that you'd look around and go, this sucks. And then a politician in a democracy will always come along and say, ever since ancient Rome, ever since Cleon in ancient Greece, in, in ancient Athens, comes along and says, your life sucks and I will fix it. And people say, you got my vote. So it's not a surprise that this pol these policies have happened in the last 30 years, since about 1980. Capitalism in this period of the Cold War is about happiness. It sells happiness. This is why, even though capitalism doesn't always work for all the people, they love capitalism. You ask Americans, do you like capitalism? They say, yeah, I love capitalism. And you're like, it just shipped your job. Capitalism just shipped your job to China. And they're like, yeah, well, I still like capitalism. Capitalism sells happiness and it does it through advertising. Consumerism equals better life through stuff. 
You want to have a better life? You need stuff. You need the right cigarettes. The right breakfast cereal. The right house. Remember we talked about this on television. Television sells the better, higher lifestyle. So it's access to sex without responsibility or consequence. National Airlines. But beer commercials do the same thing. But people can also reject that branding. They can reject the capitalism. So you get boycotts, like the Southern Baptist boycott against Disney uh, in the 1990s. Disney uh, movies. Uh, you have blood diamonds of West Africa. You've got South African apartheid, where basically the world turned to South Africa and said, we're not going to trade with you anymore until you, you get rid of apartheid. You can do economic damage, and economic damage can change culture and politics. These are your modern Twitter campaigns when someone does something racist or sexist or misogynist and it's like fire that person or if you can't fire that person, write to their advertisers, write to their sponsors and get their sponsors to pull their ads. And if they pull their ads, then either the person will get fired that you don't like or they will change. That person will have to change to get the sponsors back. And so the idea is that economics in capitalism can change politics. That even if you can't change politics yourself, I can't vote out this guy. I can boycott the companies that support the guy I don't like. So what are the results? The results is advertising begins to occupy all forms of life. And you're on the internet and you know this. It's everywhere. It's in everything. Television shows are what happens between commercials. The internet is free because of advertising. Children are turned into consumers. Take a look at the video. If On the video, which one can you identify? And we've got a dude, an old dude with a big fluffy beard holding a Coke. Big red suit. We've got a picture of a mouse with big ears, yellow shoes, red short pants, gloves, white gloves. And then we have pictures of old guys. Which can you identify? They're all 100 years old. Which can you identify? I'm going to bet you can identify Santa and Mickey Mouse. Meanwhile, the other two... Exactly. Exactly. So they're U.S. presidents, by the way. I'll leave it to you to go figure out who. But they're presidents. So. What about the Soviet Union? In the Soviet Union from 1965 to 1985, you have a closed system. Money can't leave it. Eastern European countries could only trade with other Eastern European countries. Ultimately, what that led to was a collapse. They simply could not provide the goods people wanted. And the most famous part of this was the Kitchen Debate World Fair in 1959. It's World Fair. All the countries of the world get together. They want to show off their newest technology. They want to show off what they do that's great. And... It's Nixon, Vice President Nixon, 
meeting with Khrushchev. Khrushchev has replaced uh, – Stalin had died five years earlier and Nixon replaces uh, – not Nixon. Khrushchev had worked his way to replace him. And what you got was a debate because they went around the fair together. It's kind of amazing. It is really amazing that the leader of the Soviet Union and an anti-communist hawk of a vice president not only shook hands, they went on a date together. They walked through different pavilions together. And so they go to the American pavilion. And in the American pavilion is the kitchen with all the new technology that's coming out or about to come out. The washer machine, the garbage disposal, all of this stuff, detergents, soap detergents, uh, um, Dish detergents, all this stuff, electric ovens to replace coal or wood. And it's look at all, look at all of our American technology. Look at all of our superiority. Our, and Nixon says, our women, our wives don't have to work so much anymore. And Khrushchev's response was, well, our women aren't so delicate that they need machines to do the work for them. And so the debate was American technology, cutting-edge technology, capitalism, versus Soviet grit and spirit. We're real. It's, 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 it's in some ways the debate between the urban and the rural today, between um, Sarah Palin's real Americans who work on farms in rural America versus those who work at computers in New York, L.A., San Francisco. That's the idea of this technology versus, well, he couldn't, Khrushchev couldn't say, look at our technology. I mean, they had the rockets. They, were, they had satellites. They had one space. But when you looked at a Soviet kitchen, it couldn't compare to an American kitchen. Couldn't. So he changes the debate and says, well, it's about our women. Our women are tougher than your women. Your women are very delicate. They need those machines. And so it's technology versus spirit and grit. Now, those of you who are fans of the Rocky movies, being that you're from Philadelphia, should understand that that's weird. Because the Rocky Four flips it. By 1985 or 1984, when Rocky Four comes out, um, Soviet technology is awesome. They're making Drago. They're making this super boxer who's so technologically built. He's practically a machine. And he, he, he kills boxers in the ring. How is Sylvester Stallone as Rocky going to compete? He goes to an isolated Russian Baltic town in the snow where he lifts trees and he chops wood and he runs through the snow and he mushes huskies and he's he doesn't need technology he's the anti-technology guy and it's american spirit versus this fake russian cheating technology when in reality which is funny because in reality it's the opposite and the uh, in the reality by 1985 there's computers on people's desks this technology. America is so far ahead technologically. The average American is living in a completely different world than the average Soviet, average Russian by 1985. So it's interesting that in Rocky IV, they flip it. That technology is bad. And the Soviets have it when they didn't. 
So what happens is the closed systems collapse. The Soviet system could not create consumer products people wanted. Ultimately, that was the problem. And so you get glasnost, which is openness. We're going to open ourselves up. We're going to, we're going to have some more um, trade with the West. And all that brought about was failure. It was a disappointment because suddenly Western goods came in. Blue jeans came in. They were, they were uh, uh, a black market good for a long time. But now they come in and people see American blue jeans versus Soviet blue jeans or a Mercedes Benz versus a Muscovy car. And they go, our government makes crap. Which means our system is crap. So since the government makes the products and those products are a disappointment, the government is a failure. And we see this very clearly because even in the 50s, even in the 60s, elites never participated. Elites always had access to Western goods. They drove Mercedes's, not Muscovich. There was always... Elites always wanted to be part of the world economy. They didn't, they found ways around the closed system because they knew they, this, the stuff outside the Soviet Union, outside the Eastern Bloc was better. And they had the money to bribe their way through the black market or through various business contacts or government contacts into that, into that world. So what happens is that economic collapse and the f lack of belief in the Soviet Union, which is a bigger problem, that, we're, that our system is failing, may, leads the Soviet Union to give up its European empire in 1989. That leads to German unification. East Germany, West Germany unify again for the first time since 1945. Democracies, the EU, NATO, all expand into Eastern Europe, which, of course, freaks the Russians out. They're like, wait a minute, all this stuff was built to be against us. Why are you expanding? The Soviet Union in 1991 broke up into 15 countries. And you get independence, but you also get turmoil. Almost every one of these countries suffered in the 1990s as they tried to go from a state-owned economy to a capitalist economy. Because here's the thing. You have a toilet paper factory that's made by the government. Great. Now, if the government's not going to own it, who owns it? Well, what happens is some rich dude with contacts in the government, some corrupt dude with money, buys, goes to auction, and he buys that factory. Maybe he buys all the toilet paper factories, and now he's got a monopoly. And so what happened is things that used to be made for the public, by the public, by the government, are now owned by private citizens that are almost entirely corrupt. Because they're not corporate corporations. They're not building up from the ground up. They're coming, they're being handed down from the top down. And so... It causes, in the 1990s, a lot of economic problems, and very quickly, Eastern Europeans grow tired of capitalism. They see capitalism as exploitive, 
all the things they had been taught for the last 50 years, they start to believe are true. There was that first flush of, oh, it's so much better. And then they realized the dark side of capitalism, the deindustrialization, for example, side that Americans and Europeans had discovered in the 70s, and they don't like it. So conservatives hated the loss of prestige. People hated the loss of stability. And you end up with dictators throughout the old Soviet world, the most important of which is obviously Putin. And you get these guys who promise, I'll bring you stability. I'll, I'll fix these problems. Now, they're totally corrupt. But they do, a lot of them do bring that stability. Now, for every $2 that are made, one of those dollars probably goes into their pocket, into a Swiss bank account or a Grand Cayman's bank account. But the people... The vast majority of people get what they want. They got some kind of stability, some kind of economic growth, some kind of government that being based on, especially on coal, gas, oil, can give them stuff free of charge without high taxes. And so you get this kind of stable, supported, popular dictatorships that pop up all throughout Eastern Europe. And that's where we will end. That is the end of the... Um, so that's where we will end. That's the end of the course. That's the end of our thing. That's where we are now. We brought it up to 2017. Um, we have Putin in Russia. We've got Trump and Brexit and um, fascists in Hungary and in um, Poland. Uh we have a world that is much, much richer, but also one that's less stable than it was 50 years ago. But it's also, in many cases, much more democratic. More people vote, more people participate, more people have a say in their government's actions than they did in the 1950s. More people are literate, more people are getting an education, Female education, female work, minority work, minority education, all have gone up. It is the best time to be alive in human history. To be a human in 19, in 19, in 2017, this is the best time to be alive. Now, not for everybody in every place, but in aggregate, as a human, We live longer, we die less, and we make more money. We live a better lifestyle. So there's optimism for the future. So no matter what you um, hear on the news and, and on Twitter and on Facebook about how terrible things are, um, we've taken an entire course in which every section was saying how terrible things were. And life got better. So... Good luck, good night, and uh, I'll see you in, if you're going to follow and, and subscribe, I'll see you in a few weeks when I start doing a, a Swedish podcast series. So take care.